good morning. Good morning. <laughs> you know, as I mentioned last week, uh, the passage that we're going to deal with this week is a little different than most of the passages in the New Testament. All right, and as for, for those who have a King James Version, this passage is going to appear normal. Right? It just occurs in the text as you would expect it. No brackets around it, nothing like that, no footnotes. But for those who have maybe a newer translation, you might not even see this passage. It might be in a footnote. Uh, it might, you might just have brackets around this passage in John chapter eight verses, uh, or John chapter seven, verse 53 through eight and 11. You might have it in brackets, and you might have a little note that says, "The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 through 8:11." So why is that, right? What happened? What are we to make of this passage? Right? And a f- several weeks ago, we talked about something called textual criticism. It's uh, this, this way that they study the manuscripts of the New Text- Testament, and it's just they ask the question, well, why do we have the text that we have? Or what was original to this text? Those are the kinds of questions that textual criticism asks. And before we even get to any of that, we got to understand how our text, how the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, that was the original language, how they were copied and then distributed, right? And so essentially the way it was, was for uh, nearly 1,500 years, they would have rooms full of scribes and they would copy down these New Testament texts, the, the Gospels, the letters, rooms full of scribes, they would copy them, handwritten copies, and they would distribute them. For nearly 1,500 years, right? The first printed Greek text was not printed until 1516. So the way they distributed it was by hand copies by scribes. And since the New Testament for so long was copied like this, occasionally, occasionally scribes would make mistakes. Uh, there might be punctuation mistakes in some of the manuscripts, and there might even be passages like this one in John 7:53 through 8:11 where kind of seems like it wasn't original. Uh, there, there's some verses, there's even the ending to uh, Gospel of Mark that doesn't seem to be original. And so occasionally we have this issue. Uh, what were these scribes doing? What were they thinking? And these additions or these mistakes, they're called textual variants and textual criticism. Now, while we have these occurring in Scripture, as I mentioned several weeks ago, I don't think this is anything to be worried about. Uh, So just bear with me as I nerd out a little bit. Uh, But the New Testament and its text, the manuscripts, have about a 99% accuracy rate, with the exception of punctuation mistakes, with the exception of uh, passages like here in John and the passage at the end of Mark and occasional verses that seem to have been added. Other than the few mistakes, 99% of it, if you were to compare the manuscripts, overlap. And not to mention, the New, Text, uh, the New Testament manuscripts are the best attested to historical writings at its time. I talked about this. Over 5,000 partial or full Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some dating within 100 years of Jesus being on earth. Now, just to compare this to other historical works around that time, Tacitus and his histories, supposed to have been written around 100 AD, only two manuscripts exist for Tacitus' histories. Both manuscripts, written several hundred years after supposedly Tacitus wrote his histories. Uh, Livy, 
Livy's Roman history. Only 20 manuscripts exist. And all those manuscripts are much later than when they suppose that his history was written. His history was written around the time of Christ. Compared to the Greek New Testament that has well over 5,000 manuscripts. See, there's not a single historical work that comes close to the historical reliability of the New Testament. Not a single one. And to me, the, the, the way they distributed and copied uh, the New Testament at such a profound rate, thousands upon thousands copied and distributed, tells me, man, they thought this was important. As compared to other historical works that only a few manuscripts existing, there's something different about the New Testament. And so, to say the least, there's not a single historical work that comes close to the New Testament's reliability and regardless of the, uh, the mistakes, regardless of the mistakes that some scribes make, uh, these additions, the, these punctuation errors, they don't affect Christian doctrine. They don't. They have no effect on Christian doctrine. So what are we to make of this? Like, what, what are we to make of John chapter 7, 53 through John 8 through 11? Should we uh, include it in the Gospel of John? That's the issue. Now, most textual scholars would say no. Uh, and I think I'd be in agreement. Right? The earliest manuscripts that we have, meaning the ones closer to the original, which are more likely to be like the original, do not include this text in the Gospel of John. In fact, it seems like they didn't even know where to put this edition. Some manuscripts put it after 736. Some put it after 744. Some put it after 2125. Some put this text in Luke. And so not only is it pretty clear that this was an edition, the scribes could not decide where to put this edition. And not to mention, in the text itself, it flows better. From John 7.52 to John chapter 8, verse 12, it flows better. Uh, it seems that in John 8, verse 12, it seems like Jesus would be responding to what the Pharisees said about him in John 7.52. I encourage you to take a look at that. Read that. You'll see that it flows a whole lot better when you read it that way. So should it be included in John? Probably not. However, right, there's a big however. There are some textual scholars who think that this event really did happen. Even if it's not original to the Gospel of John, there are some who think this really did happen. And I would be inclined to agree. After all, in John 21, verse 25, remember what John says about his own Gospel? He says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John tells you, hey, look, I'm not recording everything. If everything were recorded, the whole world could not contain the books that were to be written. So is it possible uh, that this text here happened and maybe a scribe, he, he heard it from someone and then he decided to include it in the text? Maybe. Maybe that's what happened. But should this text be considered as part of the original Gospel of John? No. Could it have still happened? Yes. Am I going to preach this text regardless? Yeah. I'm going to preach it regardless. Now, I'm not preaching this text to you as if I think it's inspired Scripture. I'm not so sure about that. I don't think I can call this inspired Scripture since it wasn't likely 
in the original manuscript of the Gospel of John. But the thing is, this text teaches principles that we see elsewhere in the New Testament. So I think it is deserving uh, to be preached. Maybe not as inspired scripture, but preached nonetheless. So John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verses 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11. Verse 53 through 8, 2 says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down, and he taught them. Right? So he's getting ready as he usually would. He sits down, he's going to teach them like a rabbi would. Verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst... Uh-oh. That's exactly as it sounds. Uh, These Pharisees caught her presently in the act of adultery, and then they they forced her to stand in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Kind of think about the situation for a second, right? Probably part of their intent is to shame her. Let's take this woman, this sinful woman, let's put her right in the middle of the crowd and point out what she has done. We'll see how Jesus responds to this. Verses 4 through 5. The Pharisees said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now, it's pretty obvious, right? When we, when we read through this passage, it's pretty obvious what they're trying to do even before we get to verse 6. They want to catch Jesus teaching something contrary to their law, right? They test Jesus. Hey, this is what our law says. What do you say? They want Jesus to say something against their law so that they could feel like, hey, we can indict him now because he's teaching against our law. He's a false teacher. As verse 6 says, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus, he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, it's interesting that this whole commotion, this whole commotion is not even about the law. But they come and say to him, hey, look, we caught this person in adultery, uh, and our law says that we should stone them. What do you say? But that's not even their concern. Their real motive is to bring her to try and test Jesus and to trap Jesus. They act like they're all concerned about the law, but they just want to trap Jesus. They come in a false pretense, right? They're lying. That's really breaking the law. They're lying about their motive. And Jesus, he just bends down, as the text, he just bends down and writes on the ground with his finger. Now maybe, maybe this is just him saying, I'm not interested in your theatrics. Maybe, and this is an interpretation I'm sure you probably heard before, maybe this is Jesus making a statement about who he is. Right, Exodus 31, verse 18. It says, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I find this interpretation very intriguing, and I think it's valid. Maybe by bending down on the ground, writing with his finger in response to this, Jesus is saying, you don't think I know what's in the law? I'm the one who wrote the law. I wrote the very foundation for the law. I wrote the Ten Commandments. I am the law giver. 
Verse 7, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Essentially, if you want to condemn her, if you want to condemn her, all right, which one of you has not broken the law? Because Jesus knows for a fact that every single one of them has broken the law. Verses 8 through 9. And once more he bent down, again, riding on the ground with his finger, probably saying, hey, I'm the one who wrote this law. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, and beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus, he knows the law better than anybody else. After all, he wrote it. Riding on the ground with his finger, he wrote the law. But here's a question for you. Why didn't Jesus just affirm what the Pharisees said? I mean, they, they are right about the law, that the law does command them that they should stone such a person. But here's the thing. Yeah, they're right. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, they all have broken the law. They all have transgressed against God's law. They all deserve to die for their sins. Some people ask the wrong question when they're thinking about the law. Some people are concerned about, oh, what laws from the Old Testament apply to us today? That's the wrong question. Just by asking that question, it kind of shows me you're more concerned about justifying yourself. What laws apply to me? What laws do I have to follow in order to justify myself? That's the wrong question. The question is not what laws apply to us. The question should be, well, what was the purpose of the law? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, Paul puts it pretty straightforward what the purpose of the law was. Verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might, be, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's pretty straightforward. The law highlights our need for God's provision. It highlights our need for God's grace. See, God knew, God knew that we could not follow the law. God knew that the Israelites were not going to be able to follow the law. The law highlights their need for Grace. And Paul continues, verse 19. Verse 19 through 29. Why then the law? It was added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now faith has come. We are no longer under our guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, the law was always intended to point to our need for grace through faith. You're asking the wrong question if you ask, what laws apply to me today? You've got to first ask, what, what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, straightforward, to highlight your need for God's grace that can be received through faith. So in John chapter 8, the Pharisees, they don't get the purpose of the law. And they do not see Christ as the lawgiver. Now ask yourself, if you were to stand before the law and the lawgiver, do you recognize your need for grace? Really, if you were to stand before the law and Christ himself, would you feel like, you know, I've done pretty good. I've done some good things in my life. Would you feel justified because of what you have done? Or would you feel your desperate need for his grace? There's no justifying yourself. There's no saving yourself by works. There's only justification through grace, through faith. And so now this woman here in John chapter 8, she stands before the lawgiver himself. And keep in mind what Jesus just told the Pharisees. He was without sin, cast the first stone, and not a single one of them dared to even think about casting a stone. Don't think about it. There's not a single person in here who's in a place to think about casting stones at somebody else to condemn somebody else. We are not in a place to do that. Now think about who Jesus is, though. The lawgiver. But he's also sinless. He's the one without sin. And since he's the one without sin, Jesus, he's the only person He's the only person who could cast stones at her and be justified in doing so. Jesus is the one person, really, Jesus is the one person who could condemn every single soul on earth and be justified in doing so. He doesn't need to show us grace. He didn't need to suffer for us. He didn't need to be arrested for us. He didn't need to be put on a cross for us. He didn't have to show us grave. He didn't have to do any of that for a single one of us. Verses 10 through 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. At the one without sin, the one person who'd be justified in condemning her, the one person who'd be justified in condemning every single soul on earth, doesn't. Instead, he shows grace. Now, I don't point this out. I don't point out that God could justly condemn all of us to scare you. I point that out to show you, to demonstrate his grace, right? God did something for us he didn't have to do. He showed us grace that he didn't have to show us. 
And of course, at the end of this passage, he, he tells this woman, I, I don't condemn you. Go now, go from now on and sin no more. Now, as with the paralyzed man in John chapter 5, right, he told him, go now and sin no more. I don't think Jesus says this because he expects her to sin no more. I don't think Jesus thinks, yeah, you have the capacity to no longer sin. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus highlights that they have a sin problem. The paralyzed man. Your real problem is not that you're paralyzed. Your real problem is a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. A sin problem that only can be addressed by Jesus. A sin problem that can only be washed by Him. A sin problem that can only be rectified by His blood and by the Spirit sanctifying us. So as we reflect on this passage, even if it's not original to John, I want you to realize that Jesus, he could have showered stones on all of us. Instead, he showered us with his grace. If you need, if you want, we all need, really. If you want to be showered in his grace, you can come as we stand and sing.